Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, listener. I'm Kyle Anker, and welcome back to Talk of the Devils. This is the dedicated Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. Come up this week, we're going to debrief Manchester United's first visit to Ellen Road in about 18 years. We're going to look ahead to a tricky Europa League semi-final against AS Roma, and we are going to try and read the tea leaves on player contracts, fan protests, and a lot more. I'm joined, as ever, by my fellow Manchester United beat reporter, Laurie Whitwell. Laurie, how you doing? I'm doing good, Carl. Cheers. How you doing? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. It was my first time to Ellen Road on Sunday. It was uh, mm. a lot of fun. Wasn't as tasty as it usually is, right? Well, so the Leeds board came out, you know, Sunday best suits, wear white roses. Uh, and I'd say there was around about 200 to 300 people trying to give it the best sort of um, non-league feel. So... Uh, <laughs> After you've watched a couple of nil-nil games in the stadium and thought that was quite fun, I think I now understand what you're talking about. Yes, <laughs> yes. See, I told you, you got to be there and live it and see it and feel it. We, we, to be fair, we could actually hear the uh, the Leeds execs on the TV. It was very much uh, transmitted through the audio that, that there was uh, quite a few people in the stadium. They, they get quite emotional, don't they? Uh, some yeah. of the guys in Leeds. It was a, uh, a game full of industrial language, shall we say. <laughs> Good, but as it should be. Also with us is a man who's had some interesting visits to Ellen Road during his time. He is the editor of United We Stand and contributing writer to The Athletic. It's Andy Men. Andy, how you doing? Hi, Carl. Tired, busy, disappointed with the Leeds game at the weekend. I really felt that that was one game which was missing fans more than any other this season. I remember when Leeds were promoted last year and I thought I would so much rather go to Ellen Road to watch a big game between Leeds and Manchester United and so many other grounds. I'm not going to pick on Bournemouth again. I usually say Bournemouth, <laughs> but hey, they've been relegated. But I think I think it was really noticeable. Uh, there's normally 40,000 baying fans there in a good way. And I like that age. I like that age of uh, football matches and that, that rivalry. So I think it was, it, it was felt. But a lot's been going on, on and off the field, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it. A lot has been going on. So let's start before kickoff on Sunday where a plane banner was flown over Ellen Road, reading two billion taken out, Glazers out. Um, this is part of the continued fan protest from Premier League fans of all teams around about the Super League, and also some more focused ones from Manchester United fans regarding United fan ownership. After the 0-0 draw, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was asked about the protest and whether he'd seen it. Um, Solskjaer said he hadn't seen it and his players hadn't seen it and he was very much focused on the game on Sunday. But... Laurie, I'm going to ask this to you first. Do you think this is these sorts of protests are going to run until the end of the season? Yes, I think so. I mean, obviously, we've seen the uh, coordinated effort ahead of the Liverpool game. I'll be there for that one. So we'll see um, how many people 
come down. Obviously, the, the stuff outside Old Trafford on Saturday felt quite significant in the end. I mean, you can kind of look at it in one way and say, you know, out of the millions around the world that are Manchester United fans or even, you know, the thousands in the local vicinity that are United fans, how many of those actually turned out to protest? But I still think it was quite a visceral image seeing that many people together, you know, in lockdown when a lot of people probably would have been weighing up whether it was the right thing to do. They obviously wanted to show their feelings and I think absolutely they should be, um, you know, endorsed in doing so, you know, and it felt like a reason for people to get together and kind of remember a little bit about what football has been about. You know, it's been so long since people have, have been able to get together and sing a few songs. And it felt like, you know, that, that was quite a significant moment. Obviously there was the, the protest at Carrington and I think sort of credit to Solskjaer for coming out and speaking to them and, and speaking about it afterwards in public and saying that it's right to engage with people, you know, that the protest, the police were called, you know, that they were entitled to be called, but it was a peaceful protest. They, they had a, a conversation. And uh, and so I think these kind of moments, the banner is a sort of another one. We've seen a few planes, haven't we, in, in various moments uh, throughout the years. Uh, I think Edward Wood, specialist in Failure, was one. A few other playing banners for different clubs. Um, so perhaps that wasn't the most original, but still it means a match that's go- currently going on with, you know, Manchester United is... Uh, the focus is that is switched to the protest and, and the point being £2 billion stolen was, was their words. We did a piece on the Glazers where we reflected that about £1.5 billion, the Glazer takeover had cost the club about £1.5 billion in terms of debt on the club, interest rates, dividends, um, various other issues. So that's, I think, where they're coming from with that one. But yeah, Sunday seems like a, another coordinated effort. So it'd be interesting to see how many people show up for that and what the kind of sense of feeling is. Because I don't think all supporters of clubs that, that signed up to the Super League, there's been animosity to it. You know, Stamford Bridge, Tottenham, Arsenal, you know, major protests I'm sure we'll see Liverpool as well and it is interesting that you've got United versus Liverpool at a sort of perhaps a, a unified um, site that, that wouldn't really be expected on, on that one but I feel like with United there is obviously that underlying issue that's always been there since the Glazers took over I can imagine that this will you know go on f- you know throughout the rest of the season they will see this moment as a pivotal one I think with Ed Woodward uh, stepping down and you know a decision needing to be made there with the fact that you've got Joel Glazer apologizing to people in a letter now listen you know you can take that as you as you want but it's still a, a pretty significant moment given Joel Glazer has, has not spoken to the fans you know whatsoever really since um, taking over um, so I think people see this as a, as a pivotal moment and I think that's why the the, the the, the sort of pressure will be sustained. Um, Andy, you did a, a really good interview with Jim O'Neill, didn't you, uh, for United We Stand podcast, where, you know, and he's somebody who has been on the United board as a non-exec and, and knows finance inside out uh, for his role at Goldman Sachs. And he wrote a letter, didn't he, to Joel Glazer to, to advocate for a new ownership structure. So I think there's you've got different elements there. You've got the fan um, the, the kind of tribal fan element where, you know, it, it will get, you know, songs will be sung that are that some people find distasteful, but that's how people feel. And then you've got the other side of things, which is kind of a bit more um, logistics, I suppose. And, and you know, that, that kind of view of, of things. But I, th- I think we'll see this throughout the rest of the season for sure, Carl. Andy, prior to the game against Leeds in the press conference, you asked Oli Gunnar Solskjaer a question about whether or not you believe Manchester United sent to the fans and he gave a diplomatic answer, shall we say? I think he had to be diplomatic. I also think he had to be careful. I think if Oli Gunnar would have come out and praised the Glazers, the, there was there wouldn't have been an appetite for listening to that from Manchester United fans, especially after Jurgen Klopp came out 
and Pep Guardiola came out explicitly criticising uh, the Super League proposals. Just touching on what Laurie said, there's a lot of anger around among Manchester United fans. There's a lot of frustration. And it's not just about the European Super League. This is the cloud that's never really gone away in terms of the Glazer ownership 16 years ago. They've never been accepted. They've never sought to communicate directly, despite saying that they would do when they took over in May 2005. It was hugely controversial then. There were massive protests then. And there's no, there's no love for the owners of, of Manchester United. It ebbs and flows. You have times where fans are particularly angry. Something normally triggers that, be it refinancing. Not really related to the football. If you want a reaction in the ground or on the ground, near the ground, uh, it doesn't tend to be when the football's bad. I remember a lot of online noise in June 2019, basically because United had not signed the players who fans wanted. And there was talk of a protest and like 25 people turned up. That's not what gets people on the in real life turning up and protesting. What's happened here is you've got the, the Super League proposals and the bigger issue of the ownership uh, of the club and fans are frustrated. I think a lot of humans are frustrated at the moment because of the, the global situation. So in that respect, the timing was absolutely terrible to put it out. It, it really was just lighting this, this fire, which is burning and has burned to various degrees in England, less so in continental Europe. And the protest was significant on Saturday and the more organised one planned ahead of the Liverpool game this weekend. I mean, it's a shifting story all the time. A week ago, I would have said there was a case for United and Liverpool fans joining up against the Super League that's all changed now because that's not going to happen at least not for now but now it's about United I, I speak to you know, I've written about fan culture for most of my life and I speak to people from a whole variety of backgrounds within Manchester United's fan base ranging from people who go to every single game home and away friendlies in the Far East whatever to people who I've never been to a match, but watch every single game through a screen in various parts of the world. And United support is global. The one thing, these protests, is it's almost unified the entire support, which is there's so many different demographics in United support. People want completely different things. Sometimes when I'm writing about ticket prices, I'm aware that 90% of people, of United fans, they don't really care because they'll never go to a game. But with this, I think there's very few uh, different strands of opinion. I think people are really, really frustrated. And you've seen different groups doing things like the, the plane the other day, the, the protest on Saturday, the planned protest at the weekend. And I think the Glazers have got to do something. And I, I know they've weathered storms before. I think they've got to do something. And you know, I spoke to Jim O'Neill, as Laurie said, he thinks that there's a better, better way for ownership Boris Johnson touched on dropping a, a legislative bomb. So that could absolutely spook American owners of English football clubs, including the Glazers. But will that just be talk coming from the Prime Minister? We've got a question here from Matt Boslock about what might happen. And it's related to transfers. As to, Do you think the active protests against the Glazers will determine how likely they are to spend big or not on players in the summer? Uh, I want to throw this one to Laurie first. Can the Glazers get the fans back on side by delivering some of the players Manchester United fans desperately crave? There's always a way of linking it back to transfers, <laughs> isn't there? 
Um, yeah. I, 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 don't, I, would, I wouldn't sense any particular appetite from the Glazers to, to change approach in, in the market, you know, given what's happened or even to kind of curry favour with, with fans. I mean, they've pretty consistently sort of spent in moments when they felt like they've needed to, you know, to, to really strengthen the squad. And then it's sort of drifted at moments where you thought, actually, now's the time to strike. You know, last summer and also the summer after Jose Mourinho finished second with United, um, you know, perhaps an underwhelming couple of transfer windows. But then, you know, obviously they broke the British record, well, the, the world record, I suppose, for a, for a defender in, in signing Harry Maguire. And I think he has proved, you know, pretty pivotal, whatever people um, want to say about his individual attributes. You know, the fact that they <laughs> that the Super League was supposed to give them a guaranteed pool of revenue, wasn't it? So, you know, with that, taken out you'd think actually they're not inclined to spend as much as they might have been if they had that kind of copper bottomed and, and were they able to project what their revenue was going to be um i mean all along you know people have said sort of one marquee signing is probably about the extent of it and then the rest dependent on sales and i don't really see any change in that i, I think the the letter from joel glazer was a as an almost placeholder, you know, he had to say something, didn't they? I mean, you've got John W. Henry on video talking. I mean, it felt a bit torturous that, um, you know, <laughs> sort of that kind of hostage style video. <laughs> so, so I don't think Joel Glaze was going to do something like that, but equally, you know, he has addressed the issue at least, you know, so to speak, but I don't, I don't know if it, I, I would be surprised if this, if they then took this as a moment to try and, you know, win fans back by spending big on a player. I think there the overriding impetus comes from the bottom line. And this has actually been affected in a way that, you know, sort of um, shrinks the potential for, for a guarantee of, uh, of revenue each year. So, so why would they, you know, necessarily go out and, and spend big? What do you think? I can see the incredible cynical view where you sort of spend 50 million in order to win fans on side with the fact that you've taken out several billion. But I think the Glazers are a fan ownership culture that prefer to stay the course, keep quiet and keep their heads on the ground. So I don't really see them uh, spending an extra 100 million on player X in order to get Manchester United to where they want just to win the fans on side. Because as Andy's just said, the fans haven't really been on side, at least a large percentage of the fans haven't been on side with the Glazers for a long time. I think Joe Glazer's statement about rebuilding the trust was uh, particularly interesting because as Oliver Kay, one of our other athletic writers said, they never made an effort to build the trust in the first place. <laughs> yeah. There's a bit to rebuild, is there? I mean, it was some something that somebody uh, close to the situation said to me, actually, who, who sort of understands the Glazers, who said that they, they're they not immune to the criticism. You know, they, they do see it, albeit they probably see a filtered version that isn't, you know, they're not there on the ground, are they? They're not sort of, you know, scrolling through the Athletic or, or Mail Online or however else you might want to get your your um, your sort of news on the ground. Um, so that, that so they but they, but they do you know understand the criticism, but they take a long term view of it, um, which is to say basically that they've invested in Manchester United from their own mindset as an investment opportunity where they can take dividends and, and they can you know they ultimately have this asset that they could sell at any different point if they wanted to or portions of it. So why would they necessarily re- react to every outburst from fans? You know that, that their view is a long term view. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Shall we talk about Manchester United nil, Leeds United nil? Or uh, was that just a bitty nil-nil draw we should move past quite quickly? What do you think, Andy? <laughs> I think we should move past it quite quickly. I still think it was played under a cloud uh, because of events off the pitch. Um, it saw United's winning run come to an end. Uh, I was quite intrigued by Bielsa's tactics. I often am. And putting Calvin Phillips onto Bruno. I often expected him to follow Bruno back into the dressing room, onto the team coach, back to his <laughs> house in Manchester. So that Bruno had to say to his partner, look, this lad just won't leave me alone. You're going to have to make him succeed tonight, look. And I think Leeds have, have added to the Premier League this year. I know they lost, uh, conceded six at Old Trafford, but their results are really intriguing, uh, especially against the bigger clubs. And Bielsa's got in him to set a side up to avoid being beated. I think United lacked sharpness up front. There were a few chances. Dan James miscontrolled one pass. Mason Greenwood looked creative when, when he got the ball. I thought the defence was fine. It's another clean sheet. United looking comfortable in second. Once again, I don't know anyone who thought United would be second at this stage in the season. And the football side of it was coming together quite nicely. If United are going to beat Roma this week, get to the Europa League final, you can say with conviction that Oli Gunnar and his staff are doing are doing a good job, but no, I don't think there would be a, a, a queue to buy video cassettes of Leeds United nil, Manchester United nil in in an, any souvenir shop um, for the foreseeable. It wasn't a classic, and <laughs> as I said earlier, I felt it really missed um, it, it. It really missed the fans. What was it like from your perspective, sat in that that old nineteen thirties main stand at Ellen Road? <laughs> It was so oversubscribed that you had to sit in the filling area. So I had to sit in the, like a regular fan seat and type on my knees. It was an interesting game. It seemed as if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer went into that game expecting to do the same thing that got the 6-2. So, you know, Scott McTominay dribble through the middle, Dan James get the ball into space and do whatnot. But after about 20 minutes, it became quite clear that Leeds United, while they were still going to do that man-marking shape and try and get touch tight, they were also going to keep compact and drop deeper. Uh, and United really couldn't adjust. Dan James, I think he's a good player if you allow him space to run into. But if you defend deep, he can have problems with, uh, with controlling the ball and trying to create and whatnot. Um, Aaron Wan-Bissaka was probably the best player for Manchester United, one man in the match. He was very busy. Um, I'd say one thing that did intrigue me was Marcus Rashford has this trick he does, particularly when he plays teams in the bottom half or, you know, the bottom bit of the top half of the Premier League, where if the opposition fullback gets touched tight with him from the first half, very often the first thing he does in the second half is try and nutmeg them. And it is sort of, this is what, okay, if you're going to try and kick me, I'll just wait and wait and wait. I'll nutmeg you and then run behind and then put in a cross. That's how he got his goal against Newcastle. That's how he got an assist against Burnley. Um, so he does this to Luke Ayling in the 14th minute against Leeds. And that was a little sign that he was getting frustrate quite quickly with how good Leeds United's plan was. I was like, oh, you don't, you normally wait until the 60th minute to do this sort of thing. I thought it was bitty. Harry Maguire uh, called Fred some interesting terms. Uh, Scott McTominay had two or three chances when he had on the ball and, and rather than pass it quickly, he sort of over dribbled it a little bit and you're getting a fris- bit frustrated. So it's one of those games where 
again, in my opinion, United need some defensive midfielders in the summer. I thought United played pretty well in, in patches because Leeds obviously were, were more defensive than I think people you know were expected. Um, listen, it was man marking system, so um, I guess that always has the opportunity for danger if, you know if they, if they nick it quickly. But um, I, I thought United did some bits that actually made sense to me. So Maguire, you know, the guy on the ball obviously is, is unmarked, so he just drives forward with it, and Maguire did that pretty consistently and to, to some good effect. I enjoyed Lindelof's balls over the top to Rashford on the curve run. I mean, that's obviously something we've seen before at Sheffield United and Granada. And I think that obviously has potential, you know, for, for going forward. It seemed like they've got a good understanding now to when to run. You know, he wasn't offside, you know, at any point. Um, and yeah, just perhaps a bit better finishing at times. You know, the, the Bruno one, he should put that on target. Dan James should hit that first time. Even Mason Greenwood. I mean, that was an, another really good run to sort of stay on side. Olioski playing him on side and, you know, took took the shot early as he as he likes to do and, and as usual, usually found him success, but just didn't quite catch it right. So I think it was one of those games where, okay, yeah, they had a week to prepare, first free week, you know, I think was it since October 2019, you know, at Carrington, which is absolutely staggering, really. And I think should be, you know, put into context of, of what Solskjaer's achieved this season, but maybe just, you know, run out of puff against a team that obviously really fit and do the man marking. So it just would have, it, it just quite a, a tight game, you know, like, claustrophobic kind of game where there wasn't much space for anyone to do anything. I mean, that was obviously the way that United managed to find success at Old Trafford so much where Phillips followed Bruno Fernandes into midfield and allowed Luke Shaw to run through the middle, you know, carrying the ball. So it just, but those opportunities didn't quite fall the same way. So um, yeah, it's a disappointing draw in the sense of, and you could see actually the, the disappointment from Solskjaer after the game, you know, obviously we've spoken about this eight point thing, you know, and sort of having a, a very, very small margin of still winning the title for United. But Solskjaer seemed to actually genuinely be, be a bit gutted afterwards in, in that that was, a, you know, obviously now a, a remote possibility, even though it was already a very small chance of, of happening. So, you know, he'd got into it thinking, right, we need to win this game and keep, you know, just keep, keep the pressure up on City you never know. But I suppose it, I suppose what it does do is, you know, it's another point. You know, I think they need to keep getting points to make sure they've got a good, obviously qualify for the Champions League, but that seems fairly, you know, um, certain now. And also um, just just get more points than last season. So 67 at the moment, 66 last season, uh, five games to go. You know, if they could get another, you know, 10 points or, or something like that, then you'd think that was a, you know, 11 points more than last season, a decent total. And then I suppose that would allow them to, as I said before, I think rotate, you know, if they needed to for the Europa League, because I think that should obviously be the, the priority now. Yeah, uh, Solskjaer also mentioned the possibility of an unbeaten away season, which yeah, that's a good point. I think is one of those things that slowly crept up on me. I didn't realise United was so good away from home until it was February, but there you have it. Uh, we have one question here from Eddie Rose at Eddie Rose thirteen that said, "Any insight into Oli's decisions with resting players and substitutions? Bruno Fernandes in particular looks dead on his feet, but almost never gives up his place to Donny Van der Beek and Paul Pogba." Uh, I can answer this one directly. I did ask Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a question about substitutes and why he waited so long. And I asked him, Paul Pogba being Muslim, was his, uh, is he possibly being affected by fasting for Ramadan? To which Ole sort of did the thing he normally does where he rubs his chin and went, ah, I see you know your religion as well. Uh, and said, while he was tempted to, to play Paul Pogba, he did also consider when would be too early to, to play him. So I think Paul Pogba might be on a minutes cap until the end of Ramadan, which I believe is in May, the second week of May. 
um, depending on how the new moon works. Um, so Porco will probably be playing 20 to 30 minutes in the league. Uh, and then in these Europa League excursions that kick off at eight o'clock and whatnot, he will most likely break his fast quite early into those games. So uh, I would not expect Paul Pogba to play 90 minutes between now and the end of the season, at least not to the levels that he played against for example, Tottenham Hotspur or AC Milan for a little bit. As for Donny van der Beek, that was an interesting one. Something that I, I found quite interesting is how when Donny does come on for his five or six minute cameos, he does often come on and his favourite position of the number 10 now. And Bruno Fernandes moves out wide, which means hopefully Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is trusting him a bit more uh, and allowing to use that sort of off the ball movement that allows Bruno and whatnot to, to run into more spaces. So that's those players. I'm not quite sure as to why Edison Cavani didn't get more minutes, but I believe that's just Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his often tactic of waiting for his plan A and uh, waiting for that to, to see if the pressure will finally go over to the boil rather than to go for his plan B yet. Let's get into Eric Bailly. He signed a brand new contract extension on Monday that will keep him at Manchester United until 2024. We've got a question here from Babs at Babs SP saying, does Eric Bailly's extension tell us anything about where the positional priorities will be in the summer transfer window? Andy, I know you've spoken to Eric Bailly two or three times in Spanish before. Um, He talked about his frustration, apparently, before the last international break. So uh, do you think this contract signing is a good thing water on the bridge and you'll be starting centre-back next season it's clearly got a value and it's United protecting their asset and if you're offering if Manchester United are offering a player a first team contract then if you're Eric Bailly or his agents and he has switched agents several times then you've still got this cast iron offer this is what 98% of agents are looking for a contract offer from a big club but if I'm not mistaken, the, de- the defence at Leeds, that was the sixth consecutive Premier League game where those four have started together. So if Bailly's frustrated and you can understand why he has been, then it's because he's not playing much football. The counter-argument to that is when he has been given chances, he's sometimes made mistakes. And the best example is probably the 6-1 at home to Tottenham. He played himself into the team. There was pressure on Victor Lindelof. Baye started. I think most United fans celebrated that start. Yet within three minutes, he'd made a, a pretty bad howler. Now, most of the players made bad mistakes that day. That's why Tottenham scored six. But I, I know that Ollie feels that he's got some attributes which are absolutely top level, but he's still got a mistake in him. And he's injury prone as well. He doesn't want to be injury prone. Nobody wants him to be injury prone, but... He just is. And if you look at the best United sides, they've been built on very stable central defensive partnerships. And I don't think that has to happen all the time now. If you look at the top teams, the squads have to be bigger. And especially this season with the intensity of the matches and there is more flexibility. But Oli still trusts that Victor Lindelof, Harry Maguire for now. But if he was completely trusting of it, then Manchester United wouldn't be looking at central defenders. And United have looked at central defenders and several other positions as well. But United wouldn't be sending scouts to places like Sevilla um, or, or looking at, well, half the Spanish central, central defenders and weighing up <laughs> or ones who play, play in Spain, should I say, and working out, A, can you get them? Are they going to improve the squad? Um, are they leaders? Are they more suited to Manchester City style of football? Um, do, do they have what we're looking for? 
at Manchester United? Are they gettable? You know, Bailly was quite cheap. That transfer came out of nowhere, just like his career. You know, he played five games for Espanyol, five, and then went to Villarreal for, for five million, which was not a lot. And that's where he surged. That's where he became known as one of the best defenders. He was brilliant against Liverpool in the... Um, I went to I went down to Villarreal to watch him in the semi-final of the Europa League. And, and he was really, really um, good there. And he's had some very good games, but can we look back at his average number of appearances and say that he's been a success? Absolutely not. He's not playing enough matches. And he's had some fantastic matches individually, but... I'd love I'd love him to be like that ultra reliable push him um, Lindelof who's been who's been much improved uh, pushing Maguire so that you could almost use the three of them that perfect three but I still think we're a little bit off that and then Axel Tuanzebe I think it's a big summer for for him as well because I would have expected him to feature more uh, than he has done this season a season of contradictions for him you know, he's clearly got something to be so good against PSG away. And yet he's not played uh, th- that much. Bailly, I think it's quite a defensive, proactive move from United. That's what they tend to do, um, rather than lose players for nothing. And Eric Bailly, is yeah. is he better than Chris Smalling? Is he a 20, 30 million euro player? If you're not going to give him a contract, then you're going to lose someone like that for nothing. Eric Bailly currently recovering, or has recently recovered from a positive COVID test that he picked up during international duty for the Ivory Coast, which, I mean, he sounds like he's had rotten luck this season. A lot of muscle injuries, a positive COVID test. And Laurie, you once said he crashed his car in January? Yeah, that was, um, I think, a, a time when he was sort of, again, in contention, really, to, to sort of displace Victor Lindelof, got, got an injury from that. It wasn't a serious thing, but, um, you know, again, just sort of made Victor Lindelof the, the, the obvious choice in that regard. And, and I think, as Andy mentioned, that back four, well, back five, really, if you include Dean Henderson, for um, you know the most recent Premier League matches, they've been the team that you know the, the first choice five, and and I think they've done a pretty good job. And okay, there's been a, a few goals conceded, but no more than one in, in each game. You know that they've conceded goals, and obviously a few clean sheets. So you can see how that's something that I think Solskjaer trusts in. But I do think Eric Bailly, he, he has this kind of erratic nature, doesn't he, even on the pitch. You know, you're kind of not quite sure what he's going to do. I, I quite enjoy that, you know, a bit of a maverick at times. You know, I did a piece after the Villa game at home where I thought he was really important in, you know, bringing the ball out and, and being able to, to beat the kind of Villa press. And I think that's an attribute that is certainly, you know, to be admired. And, and for certain games, he can come in and, and do a really good job there. So I can totally understand why United have given him another contract. There's there's not really any point, as Andy mentioned, you know, you sign a guy for 30 million you know pounds and you, you kind of, you feel like, well, you should keep giving him the chance to sustain that. There's not really much point in letting him go on a free or, or, I mean, maybe they could have sold him this summer if that's what they felt, you know, if, if they felt that he wasn't going to get enough games and he, he wanted to go, but what price would you have got for him in this market? And then how much of that would have been put towards a, a new centre-back? Obviously, it's, it's still an area that they're, they're looking at, but I guess this does indicate that they've got Maguire, Lindelof, Bailly, and Twanzabia as the four. And I suppose maybe they'll look elsewhere in the team to strengthen this summer. I get the reasoning behind this one. Obviously, we've mentioned Marcus Rojo and Phil Jones for, for their long-term deals that they got at different moments. But um, I feel like Bay is in a more 
uh, is, is in a stronger position, you know, more kind of, he's being picked, you know, more frequently. Um, and it's a three-year deal, you know, with an extra, extra year sort of option. So it's sort of, you know, love 20, an extra deal. Lovely every extra. single time, a plus one. And listen, he's 20, 27 now. So it's, uh, so it's you know, he's, he's going to be, you know, 30, 31 by the time the end of his contract comes up. So it's it sort of feels like about the right age for a centre-back. So I can, yeah, I can understand why, this has happened and obviously it's been a bit fraught at times for him you know this season he's obviously wanted more games but I think this is a satisfactory conclusion for, for all around I will say after the draw against Leeds Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said it was baby steps with Manchester United but he believed the basics were there uh, and then he let slip possibly back so he goes you know, one or two more players uh, and then we can see the next steps which I went hang on hello please make one of those a defensive midfielder another one of those a right winger and then and then it's a party Let's talk about the Europa League. Manchester United will be playing AS Roma on Thursday. Roma are currently seventh in Serie A. Uh, they lost to Calgary 3-2 on Sunday. Uh, Chris Smalling, a former Manchester United player, got a couple of minutes, as did Heinrich Katarian. Andy, how are you feeling about this Europa League game? We, also, we often use the Andy Mitten standard of quality, which is top four in a trophy for progress for United. Uh, you feeling confident about this one? Yes. If uh, United are not overcoming the seventh best team in Italy, over two legs, then I think the two leg thing is significant because I think United would have beaten Sevilla over two legs last year. I don't think they played that badly in Cologne against Sevilla. And I know that people in the club are much happier that it is over two legs. Yes, I'm well aware Manchester City have knocked United out over, over um, two legs or not this season. I don't think Roma are not the best team in Italy. They're not even going into the Champions League. They've lost the spark of a couple of years ago when they beat Barcelona well, when they did very well, played well against Liverpool. Uh, they've lost the, the, the talisman of Totti, who was so long a mainstay there. De Rossi was a huge character there. So it's a semi-final of a European competition. Of course, it's going to be tough, but the second leg is at home. Not that that makes that much difference when there's no fans and United are better than... Uh, away from home but I think United have got to be clear favourites I mean, I would rate it similar to the Celta Vigo semi-final 2017 clearly they've got players who can damage Manchester United but United were excellent in that first leg away in Vigo really powerful performance and United analysts are really doing a good job they're identifying um, they're watching the opponents very very closely there's loads of detail going on there and United have got very detailed game plans and um, doesn't always work out because you can't predict what your opponent is going to do. Helps if the team's not leaked. I know that that was a frustration where people within the club felt that it was damaging because opponents were getting an inkling of who United were going to play. And there's been a couple of occasions where um, people at the club have been really annoyed about that because they felt it's adversely affected their, their tactical plans because opponents have, have got it. But yeah, I think over two legs, United should be overcoming Roma. I'm not saying it's going to be 7-1 like it was against Roma at Old Trafford in 2007. But if you can get a decent result in Roma, I'm going to go over there. It's a difficult place to travel to at the moment. I've just got to go through all that rigmarole of all the PCR tests and, and you know, this is just travel around Europe at the moment. Normally, Roma away is dangerous, 
atmospheric. The Olympico is a fantastic stadium. The atmosphere is one of the best in the world, despite having a running track. Uh, it was really dangerous in 2007 when United went, and I'm, I'm working up a big piece for The Athletic about some of the games because United had never played AS Roma in their entire history until 2007 and then played them six times in one year and haven't played them since. So I know you're into your stats. I mean, that's just mental. It happens. Remember when Manchester United used to play Wolves all the time? How can we forget? <laughs> Laura, you will be covering the, the first leg at Old Trafford this week. Chris Smalling played a little bit on Sunday as Harry Mkhitaryan coming off the bench. Both those players didn't do great at Manchester United, but they seem quite revived at Roma now. Manchester United, really, really good in the counter-attack, really quick players. Chris Smalling, good defender when it's in front of him, but when he has to turn around, perhaps less so good. Could this just be a case of play it over the top and see what Chris Smalling can do? United know Chris Smalling well, so they'll understand his, his strengths and his weaknesses and, and they'll obviously try and um, play <laughs> with that in mind. I, I guess with Smalling, I, I think for £10 million from Fulham, non-league, I think... On reflection, I think he had a, a pretty good career at United. You know, won the title obviously, um, and I, I think perhaps he was sort of um, the, the stick that he got beat, beaten with towards the end was was his ability to play out from the back. And you know, Gareth Southgate, I guess, criticised him for that and and apologised. Then, then apologised. Yeah, I mean, Southgate has done that with a few defenders. To be fair, sort of made decisions on them and, and kind of doesn't seem like he's wholly convinced about what he thinks on them. At least managers are allowed to change their minds, but I suppose Smalling falls into that category a little bit. I mean, I, you know, he was, think of the 3-2 at, at Man City and he scored in that game. And I think he was, you know, he, he did have moments where he was really fearsome. You know, in the air, he would win a lot of things. He, he loves a challenge, you know, he's, and, and as Andy knows, he's a, he's a good guy to have around the place, um, you know, from your interview that you've done with him, Andy. I think if United aren't beating Roma, um, you know, that, that this is, it looked on paper that the same final was going to be tricky Ajax Roma as it's got closer into view you're thinking seriously this is one that United should progress through and then you're into the final the teams I mean I watched the the uh, semi-final against Ajax with, with Roma and Ajax were unlucky not to go through really but both teams look defensively shaky and I think United should be able to exploit those moments in, in Roma's defence and as Andy says seventh in Serie A you know um, it, it sort of gives an indication as to where they're at so listen it won't be easy <laughs> for sure but I, I think United um, and going back to your Paul Pogba point I, I wonder if you know the Leeds thing also is thinking about Europa League and, and, and Paul Pogba starting this game and just making sure that he's at least got enough energy in his, in his um, legs to kind of play a good portion of it. Cavani likewise, I wonder if that's what he's thinking with, you know, a big game coming up. If, if they could, you know, say they win 2-0, you'd think that would be a, a good enough score. Could, could they try and put this tie to bed in the first leg? I know that's perhaps wishful thinking, you know, it's, it's European time and anything can happen, but um, I think they should be looking at it like that. And, and then, you know, again, it just gives a little bit of breathing room um, for, for the rest of the campaign. It's a fun run of fixtures, AS Roma, then Liverpool, then AS Roma again. We've got a question from Amara Garda, Amara G, who says, uh, do we, at Talk of the Devils, get the general feeling the club believes that United's on this upward progression where... Europa League victory and then possible title challenges next season. Andy? I can see why the questions come in, but I think United have got to recruit one or two top players um, in the summer to be close to the level of, of Manchester City. I think Ollie's done a really good job getting what he has out of the players 
but I still think that um, he couldn't have done more this season. I know we can pick out individual matches. You can always do that, especially Sheffield United at home. That's what part of why we love football because you get such freak results. But I think if you you're watching the the last stages of the Champions League this week as well, and you're looking at, at PSG. When they played well at Old Trafford, they were just a cut above Manchester United. They really were. And uh, Bayern Munich and, and Manchester City, there's the best example there. So Oli's also been quite fortunate this year with, with injuries. If you look at how Liverpool's season was decimated because of their defensive injuries, um, Chelsea's manager didn't really work out. So they had to make a change there. Tottenham's manager didn't work out, um, which probably won't surprise a lot of people. United, although Jose Mourinho won trophies and did get 81 points in the league. But I think you can't be relying on Bruno too much. I think United have got to bring in a Bruno-class player, at least one, uh, ideally two, because I've said it a few times, good is okay, but you've got to be great if you're Manchester United. It's not yet a vintage Manchester United team. We can talk up the attributes, but if this team were playing the best teams in Europe at the moment, you know, this United side is not yet there. Now, there are promising youngsters, but I don't feel that uh, we're going to be getting solutions next season from your yeah, Ahmad, your Shuritere's. This is a more long-term. Um, but I think still quite a young squad. Greenwood's, I've re- I think, has really improved as a player, even though he's not got the, the number of goals this season. Uh, there's issues all over the team. There all there always will be. Uh, I'd like to see Cavani stay. I've I've written in the Athletic. I don't think he he will stay. Certainly, that's what he's consistently told the club. Um, hopefully, his mind can be changed. But if he is to go, I think United need a number nine. The top scorer by a mile is Bruno. He's not a forward, so I think a forward would definitely be needed. And I think if United went into next season with exactly the same squad as this one, I think fans would be disappointed and underwhelmed because to, to continue that progression, United have got to go out and get some top players and bring them to, to United. And I think there's a much stronger selling point for United now. Ollie can say, we're improving season after the season. Come here, we're really going to push for it. And that's what fans expect. I think most fans are behind the manager. They've got doubts at times. The football isn't always convincing. It never was. You know, Ferguson's football, there were months <laughs> when... Uh, it, sometimes fans are so revisionist when talking about how great things were. No, they weren't. When talking about you know, former executives, you know, things being good. No, they weren't. I've done the fanzine for 31 years. People have always complained about the leading executives at Manchester United. But on balance, you're doing a good job. Second in the league's good. Win the Europa League, that would be good. But you've got to strengthen in the summer. It's really important. It is a young squad, when you said that, Andy. I remember doing the numbers before the transfer deadline day. And I sort of went, oh, the average age of the squad is around about 24 years of age. And then Tom Warville, a stats person, went, oh, that means most of the squad don't remember France 98. And I sort of <laughs> felt horrified. <laughs> well, at least I could have talked about one or two possible new signings. Uh, we've addressed areas of need we all have slight different opinions on this one so Laurie I'm going to give you the mic for the final bit here what do you think is next for Manchester United 
Well, I think um, sort of above all this is the the situation with Ed Woodward and the fact that he is, um, you know, he's resigned. United say it's the end of 2021. Um, there's other people um, that say it'll be this summer um, that actually Ed Woodward and, and the Super League is very much a part of why he resigned. And listen, we've, we've done pieces on the exact reasons for that and his involvement in it beforehand and his, you know, did his, did his mind change on the Monday. Um, the, the meeting with Boris Johnson that has been reported by the Sunday Times um, that seems like it was a an, an add-on to uh, Woodward's meeting with um, number 10 chief staff is something that I think questions need to be answered on. Um, but uh, aside from that, it's a, will he be involved in transfers this summer, you know, negotiating? Obviously, he brought in John Murta to um, basically deal with some of those calls, you know, with clubs that Edward Wood didn't really, he was, he's above that in terms of his, his management of the club and his relationship with the owners. He doesn't really need to be getting involved in, in certain negotiations. So John Murta's role this summer will be involved in that. That'll be something to look at. You know, he's obviously done deals in the academy level, but, and, and there are obviously agents and, and club directors that, you know, bridge both academy and senior um, sort of deals, but it's going to be a case of building relationships on the senior level with him as well, Darren Fletcher's role, how will he um, step into it? Um, again, I think that's still something that is to be properly defined. Um, and uh, and I, I think, I suppose, you know, who, who comes after Woodward is, is a really interesting point um, because the, the, the bruising situation from the Super League still needs to be properly assessed, I think, because, you know, who else knew about this before it happened? And the motives were obviously because of, you know, people knew about it, how much they went along with it is a question, I suppose. But clearly the motivation was from the owner, you know, Joel Glazer, this is what he wanted to do. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to consider when you look at what happens in a, in a transfer market, because is it to do with what the owner wants or is it to do with what will actually drive the club forward and winning titles and winning trophies? United have stressed privately that those two things are, you know, parallel that they, they are you know that they feed off each other I think this episode has shown that actually the real end game is trying to get Manchester United to a place where they can just have um, a, a guarantee of European standard revenue every year without the, the jeopardy of, of having to qualify for it and was that at play in different moments when different signings have been passed up or, or progressed I think that 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 opens the question that opens the debate up so I think that's why this summer will be really interesting to see what happens. Um, personally, on a, on a playing point of view, yeah, I don't know, I, I sort of change my mind every every week in terms of what United need. Um, I suppose it depends on who's actually realistically gettable. So you look at Erling Haaland as the centre-forward, everyone can see that is would be a fantastic signing for Manchester United, particularly if Edison Cavani goes, as, as Andy's mentioned, as he intends. Um, but the realities of it are he is asking for uh, a, a large amount of, of wages which would break Manchester United structure do they really want to go and commit to that when they've got other people um, that have served the club for a long time on a lesser wage it's, it's, a, it's a difficult decision and, and that is something that I would agree that's a football decision it's not a money decision really it's, it's about squad harmony rather than whether we can uh, afford it or not so that then means okay do you look at somebody else who is affordable and, and clearly you know they had talks with Jaden Sancho previously where 
wages and agents fees were agreed and, and Dortmund, you know, they, they obviously need to sell this summer, you know, whether they sell both Haaland and, and Sancho, you know, remains to be seen, but Sancho's value isn't going to go up because he's a year left on his contract. He's not had, you know, the best of seasons con- compared to his previous um, high levels, but clearly there's a talented guy there and he's, he's only 21, I think. So you've, you've got another, you know, decade of performance from him. Um, we mentioned Declan Rice, haven't we? And he may be the defensive midfielder. You're you're sort of nodding your head there, Carl, and you're sort of agreeing <laughs> with me. So, you know, that, that's that's an opportunity that you know could we could they do something there with Jesse Lingard, obviously performing so well for West Ham. So, listen, I, I don't know the answers. Clearly, progressing, you know, talks with with different clubs, and and that they have done a lot of scouting. They've, they've got ideas in mind. I think you're right in that Solskjaer speaking about one or two. Um, listen, he, he never is going to be specific in a press conference, but I think that that implies his desires for sure and also gives you a, an idea as to, you know, perhaps a, a bit of the realities of the situation. Um, but I just, I think people have been, you know, privately hoping that stuff can happen quickly um, in the market. You know, it always seems to be that United are doing stuff on transfer deadline day, even if they don't actually sign anybody, they're, they're sort of talking to people. And I, I wonder if this whole fallout from the Super League affects that at all I don't, I don't really don't know but you kind of think is that still to be sorted out um, I mean United I probably should have mentioned earlier in terms of Joel Glazer's interaction with fans United have got an emergency fan forum um, coming up on Friday um, that they've arranged still to be decided who's going to appear from a United perspective um, you know Richard Arnold has uh, been on them before the managing director who is some people consider could be a, a contender to replace Ed Woodward given his commercial acumen you know Again, how much did he know about the Super League before it, it launched? Um, uh, but would Joel Glazer appear on the fan forum? You know, that would be, you know, John <laughs> Conkery did it for Arsenal. You know, he spoke to them and listen, they might not have liked everything that he had to say. They might have, you know, uh, pilloried him for some of the things that he said. But equally, you know, at least he was speaking to them. So would Joel Glazer, you know, um, actually take this opportunity to, um, sort of act on the words that he wrote in that letter, apologising for United's actions in the Super League, and and appear. Um, I, I wouldn't, I would be surprised, but you know, it's an opportunity at least. Edward would again another contender. You know, would he would he come and speak to fans? You know, he might be in, in for a, a rough time, but I think people would respect the fact that he actually fronted up and spoke. And would be surprised, but it would be opportunity. Feels like a good way to uh, to wrap up Manchester United and this strange footballing season this team has done. Uh, thank you so much, listener. Please rest assured, no matter what happens at Manchester United, we'll be there to help cover things. We're talking the Devils right up until the end of the season, and then hopefully a fun little trip to Gdansk as well. But before we sign off, I just want to tell you: don't forget. If you're just a listener, not a subscriber, you can subscribe to The Athletic for the special price of $3.99 a month for the next six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Yes, the football season's ending, but don't forget, we've got the European Championships. We've got the transfer winner to go through. We've got plenty more to dissect in the world of football. It's a must-read for all Manchester United fans, so just go to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod to take advantage of that special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. Right, now I've done that, I think I can let you both go. Thank you so much, Laurie, for joining me on this podcast. Cheers, Carl. Cheers, Andy. Thanks for listening, guys. Really appreciate all your questions. Thanks, Andy, for joining me as ever. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Laurie. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, and thank you very much, listener, for joining us. We'll uh, see you sometime next week. The Athletic.